Hello, friend. Thank you for listening to The Tully Show. I'm very excited about this episode, and we are going to get into it very, very shortly. Very quickly, first, let me remind you, I have a weekly podcast with the people's champ, Jesse Mae Peluso, The Deuce. It's becoming a thing. We're doing it every week. we got a community of listeners. One guy said that he wants the community of listeners to be called turds. I think Jesse Mae has referred to our listeners. I, I don't know if we've got a name for the community of listeners yet, but it's definitely a thing, and it's definitely happening every week, and we're definitely having a lot of fun and i invite you to join us exclusively at patreon.com slash the deuce podcast that's patreon.com slash the deuce podcast see you there okay you ready to start this show uh your host of the evening is a really funny dude um i forgot his last name but i've seen him before he's really funny uh give it up for mike Coming to you live, on tape, from my nine-year-old son's bedroom in rapidly gentrifying Culver City, adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today by popular demand, a scientist and the host of the Talk Nerdy podcast. Hello and welcome, Cara Santamaria. Hey, so you're Culver City adjacent. Does that mean you're in Mar Vista? I'm a little bit more. No, 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 no. I could just about. I could just about throw a rock into into Culver City. I We're see. So close to the promised land, and yet so far. Now we are in in glamorous uh, mid city heights. Mid city heights. I'm I'm far away from you in Eagle Rock, waving across LA. Yeah, that used to be my spot for pierogies, but then the pierogi place closed, and I, haven't, <laughs> I, I won't lie, I haven't had much occasion to to come back. Um, more than once, I have, you know, I just put up the bat signal for, for my listeners, who do you want to hear on this show? More than once, your name has come up, so I know oh, cool. that there are, there are definitely some listeners who are happy to have you here, and the rest are about to be happy to have you here. First of all, let me say that having spent some time with your podcasting, um, I really respect the the depth and the precision of the conversations that you get into on your pod. Not that I presume they would be shallow, of course, but I love how they're you know aimed at a general audience. Yeah, they definitely ask me to listen and comprehend at the top of my intelligence. I don't, I don't, um, you don't hear a lot of pods that start off by defining terms before they get into the actual conversation. I respect that we need uh, a lot more people doing that sort of thing that you are doing. So first of all, thank you for that. Thank you. What is the specific nature of your non-podcasting work i think i've heard you say that you're working on a phd i think i've heard you say you're working with cancer patients your twitter bio mentions something ominous called existential psychology (laughs) basically what um what kind of scientist are you and what kinds of things do you like working on so it's a little bit of a complicated journey but basically my background i did an undergrad in psychology and philosophy and then i did a master's in neurobiology so i sort of switched from the psych world to the to the like um wet science world and so for my master's degree i worked with like mouse brains and bird brains and you know was doing like kind of hard laboratory science And then I left for a while and became a public science communicator. So I've been doing that for like over a decade. Um, And that, you know, is a cross platform. So it's not just podcasting. I do have my show Talk Nerdy. I've worked, um, I work on the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Sometimes I do episodes of God Awful Movies. Um, But for even before I started podcasting, I was working in television. That was sort of the first um, SciComm platform that I became familiar with. So I've been working in television for a very long time doing science programming um, you know, give talks and I'm trying to think of what other things. So there's podcasting, there's TV, there's like stage stuff. Uh, right. now, now that COVID happens, there's a lot of digital online stuff. Um, and then I decided, I always wanted to go back to school to get my PhD. And I finally decided it was time. I was stable. I could pay for it. Um, that was like a big thing for me. I really didn't want to take out student loans. So I went back to school in 2017 and I am studying, you are correct, it's clinical psychology, um, but depending on where you study, you can orient and you can concentrate, and I do both. So my concentration, it's kind of like a minor or a maybe even more like a major, is, um, is social justice and diversity. 
but my orientation, which isn't something that's easy to translate. Basically, psychology has different schools of thought behind it. So you've got like your psychodynamic psychotherapists. Those are the people that are like sort of come from the Freudian tradition, even though it's nothing like Freud anymore. Like no modern psychologist thinks that way. But like, thank they goodness. Come, yeah, yeah, they you, come you from scared them. me for a second there. All right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So which is why they don't really call themselves psychoanalysts anymore. So but psychodynamic psychotherapy, then there's the cognitive behavioral psychotherapy, which is more um, like very evidence-based. It's what a lot of insurance companies take. Um, but it's also can be a little bit manualized. It can be a little bit rigid simply because it's quite testable. In order for something to be quite testable, you have to like really kind of whittle it down and make it uh, reproducible. Um, and then there's sort of like third and fourth wave approaches. And my school, luckily for me, because it, it, I really um, took to it, offered a, an existential humanistic orientation. And that's where I orient, which it's very heavy in philo in philosophy. It's based in the writings of, you know, all your favorites. <laughs> you can name, name a few. Camus, um, Heidegger, um, other than the Nazi part, he was great. Um, yeah, a, a lot of good times, guys. Yeah, a lot of good times got Nietzsche. Yeah, Kierkegaard. You're right. There were yeah, not that many. Um, but so, and you're right, all guys. Um, even though there are some more modern um, existential philosophers that are women. But so it's sort of oriented in those views, and that is the um, that is the position that I take when I do psychotherapy. And yes, my most recent placement is at a cancer center here in LA, and I work with patients from every sort of stage to from early diagnosis to active treatment to survivorship and for some people to the transition to end of life hospice um, and palliative care all throughout. So, yeah. Okay. That's very interesting to me. I have a lot of questions. I don't <laughs> mean to make light of it, but it sounds like you tell dying people about Nietzsche and Camus. No, no, like no, no. So I don't teach them existential <laughs> philosophy. <laughs> but I mean, but I'm saying like, these are the, these are, if that's like, if you go, okay, shit, what do I tell this person? They're going through such a horrible time. Well, let me go read some Camus and then come back to them. So the is idea that more is, like what it's like? It's more like, okay, um, and I don't want to minimize or make light of other approaches to psychotherapy because mm -hmm. there's a lot of depth to psychodynamic psychotherapy, which I borrow from. There's a lot of depth to CBT, which I borrow from. For example, if I have a patient who comes to me and they're very anxious about their scans and it's it's really affecting them, like their anxiety is through the roof, I might use CBT approaches, cognitive behavioral therapy approaches, yes. to help with some of the symptom management and the symptom reduction. Let's see, you're about to have a panic attack. What are some of the approaches that we can take to, um, to reduce those panic symptoms and to make this experience more manageable? The existential sort of piece of it is why are we panicking to begin with? What is the deep sort of experience that we're having and where are our thoughts going that oftentimes take us to these big picture questions about our place in the universe about our existence so is there is there a fear of death that's that is like being brought up whenever we start thinking about what our latest scans are going to look like is there sort of an existential isolation that we're trying to cope with or like are we having a hard time finding a sense of meaning and purpose in our life and so going to those deeper places and and addressing those things and working with patients on sort of finding sources of meaning, um, addressing their fear of death, approaching it, talking about mortality more openly, all of those things, that's a more sort of existential approach. So it, it kind of borrows from other approaches, but it's about whittling it down to these core um, givens of existence and grappling with those. I know you're not doing this for yourself. You're obviously doing this because you're providing a professional service, a specialized service to people, but I can't see how you could help but be affected by that and take things from that. You don't need to be contemplating end of life to be grappling with end of life mm -hmm. type questions. But many naturally. people wait. You're right. Many people don't actually think about that stuff until they experience what we would refer to as a boundary experience, like something that sort of thrusts them into a very existential place of thought. So a terrible car crash, losing yeah. a loved one, having a cancer diagnosis. And you're right. I, I often tell my patients that I'm so grateful because I get to one of the biggest things that I take away from our interactions is that I sort of get to experience and learn from the insights that they develop. Mm -hmm. And it helps me be more aware of my own mortality. And in being more aware of my own mortality, it actually helps me live my life more fully. 
I don't know who these people are who managed to make it to an advanced age without, I mean, granted, if you're in a serious car accident, you're 24 years old. Yes, you are going to be grappling with these things mm-hmm. out of nowhere. But uh, I, I, I tend to think that my problem is I spend too much time ruminating on these mm-hmm. things. Do you feel, I mean, I know this is, this is stuff that almost transcends language. Um, like, do you feel like there's anything concrete that, that you, in regard to mortality and your own mortality that you've already taken from this that you would not have probably had mental or emotional access to if you weren't already doing this sort of work? It's funny because it's what you're right. It's one of those things where like when we talk about it, it's like, yeah, obviously, like a lot of people, you can say certain things conceptually and people are like, sure, I get that. But really embodying it feeling it experiencing it is there's a depth to that there's like a phenomenology of that 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 transcends the language but you're right one of the biggest things I think is this idea that this my view at least and I don't I don't um pass this on to patients I I operate within their sort of religious and spiritual frame but my view at least is that this is all there is and so life is uh it's fragile it's precious. It can very easily go away. We didn't expect it to. And that can happen very quickly. Um, and without warning, it can also happen slowly and gradually. And the idea here is that I often use a clock analogy. Like we, we all have a clock on the wall. Everybody's going to die. None of us know when it's going to run out, but for some people it's just ticking a lot louder. And I think that having access to that loud ticking it's it's sort of it's just a perceptual shift it's like a frame shift that you periodically have to remember like i am mortal and really really go to that place and what it does is it makes the here and now much more relevant much more salient and much more precious but it's one of those things it's like meditation right the point of of mindfulness meditation is not to stop thinking nobody ever stops thinking you're always thinking the point is to recognize your thoughts let them pass then they're going to come back again and then you're going to recognize them and it's a constant flow. And I think it's the same thing with mortality, like remembering that this time is precious, remembering that this moment matters and being present in it. But you really need the reminders sometimes to do that because it's very easy to get swept into the quote, what a lot of existential psychologists and philosophers would call like the normal mode of thinking, which is quite superficial. It's, it's you know, sort of about capitalism and shopping and distracting ourselves and, you know, engaging in these very sort of superficial ways that we have to do. It's like the only way we can survive in this world. But periodically, we you know, we go to that deeper place, that introspective place, that place that's really imbued with me. Meaning. We couldn't live there. I think it would be very overwhelming to be there all the time. But to be able to go there more often, I think, is a, a gift that um, definitely my patients have given me. You mentioned the perspective that you bring to it and that perspective being this is all there is. I take it for granted you're uh, referring to the fact that you are you are an avowed atheist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't believe in like an afterlife or a spiritual realm or anything like that, though many of my patients do. And I work with them within that frame it's you know tempting to see a scientist atheist and to just assume a relationship between the two if you if you think that there is a relationship between the two do you which came first the chicken or the egg do you not believe in a transcendent you know guy with a beard that makes you want to understand the physical world in actual concrete terms or is it uh or is it kind of the the other way around. Mm, mm-hmm. It's interesting because I think it's different for different people. And I think that one does not presuppose the other, although you do see sure. cor- correlations between the two. Um, there are definitely highly religious scientists out there. And there are plenty of atheists who are like, I don't know anything about science. Um, for me, my own journey is that I eschewed religion first. So I was raised Mormon. Um, and by about 15, I was I had been grappling for a while. By about 15, it was so um, overt to my mind that this was not something that I, you know, bought into that I, you know, ultimately left the church and, and, you know, said enough's enough. So that it took me until I was about 15 to do that. People say, what was your wake up moment? When did you realize you don't believe? It's like, I don't think I ever believed. I think I was trying to believe. I think I was trying to be like a good daughter to my parents and, you know, follow in whatever, you know, they, in their view at the time, that was the moral path. So I was trying to fulfill that sort of expectation of me, but I don't think I ever fully did. And so I left at 15. I didn't really find science until grad school. Like, 
As an undergrad, I had your classic, and this is very common with young women, I had a classic sort of um, stereotype thread experience where I thought I would be bad at science, and I sort of set the bar really low, and then I was like, oh, this is hard and confusing, so I'm not going to try. And I, you know, I had a, a very kind of classic experience that I often talk to women that they experienced as well. Um, and not until I really found like a, a side of science that, that grabbed me and that was neuroscience and specifically behavioral and cognitive neuroscience, um, that I really started to get into it. So the religion, you know, or the lack of religion came first, then the science, I do think they play nicely together. But that said, I always try to um, be clear and specify that, it's not that I believe there is no God. I just simply don't believe in God. I have more of a passive atheism, meaning that I I think that God is a development, a creation, and I don't buy into that development or that creation. But I don't like reject God. I don't I don't know. None of us knows what course, happens when you die. Yeah. None of us knows what's out there. So when when I say that, oftentimes people go, well, then aren't you agnostic? And I'm like, well, yeah, but that's a redundant label because everyone's agnostic. Like you're either theistic agnostic or an atheistic agnostic, or you've got just a ton of hubris. Um, and the yeah, truth is like yeah. none of us knows. I tend to, I live my life as if there is no God, but I don't know. Nobody knows. No, no. The really aggressive aggro atheists, you got to leave that with, you know, the metal bands you listen to in, in, <laughs> yeah. in, 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 in high school. Like, we get it, buddy. You're tough. You yeah. know? Right. Exactly. Yeah. And and also with that, I, I'm not sure where I come down on that. But what difference does it make? Because the decisions that I think we ought to be making and the decisions, frankly, that make us feel best about our experience and most fulfilled in our human experience would be the exact same regard you know if there's no earthly you know if there's not an endless supply of Willy Wonka bars waiting for me in heaven it still feels really good to participate in a loving supportive environment and it feels it's our, I think our by our nature it, most of us don't feel good being cruel or selfish to one another so kind of what difference does it make I mean I, I you would hope and I right. agree with you insofar as the vast majority of religions and definitely the vast majority of just like spiritual ideologies are but i think that when you when you get to a more fundamental side of any religion that's yeah. when you get to the point where the actual dogma and the instruction within the religion becomes somebody's playbook for morality and oh, sometimes yeah. those moral perspectives are quite twisted oh yeah yeah there's no doubt about that yeah religion gives god a real bad name yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but but I don't think most uh, most people fall into that, and I don't think that most religions fall into that. I think there's always a sliver of like fundies way on the right yeah. of any religion. There's that sliver of fundamentalists who like give the whole thing a bad name. Yeah. Well, there's lots of people who really like being exclusive and judgmental and feeling better than other people. And there's lots of different ways that you can get there. And unfortunately, the more extreme forms of religion happens to be one of them. And also sometimes the more extreme forms of atheism do. Absolutely. Positively. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. 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 Those kids in high school who listened to the metal bands yeah, and couldn't yeah, yeah. wait to tell you about how there was no God. Kind of annoying in their own right. <laughs> so you talked about uh, neuroscience and behavioral science to mm -hmm. switch gears a little bit. As a person who's you're more well acquainted with the subject than anybody I'm ever likely to meet, I would love your insight into a question that I struggle with and that all societies always have and always will struggle with. Um and that's uh, to what extent can do you think, based on what you know, can we hold people responsible for evil deeds? Like to me, to plot and execute a murder in cold blood is almost without exception an insane thing to do. You need to be crazy. I know that there's probably some hard-boiled mob hitmen out there that have perfectly fine, but, but right for where the it's most just part, like cool as a cucumber and calculated, and and you could also make the case that that is a form of you like know psychopathy. Sociopathy. Yeah, 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 exactly. So you know, I think the vast majority of people who commit violent crimes probably suffer from a disease of addiction and/or a mental disorder, or and/or were themselves victim victims of some sort of crime or some sort of abuse, which predisposed them in a way that was not a level playing field with those of us who weren't subject to those sorts of horrifying conditions. That having been said, we obviously can't excuse the vast majority of murders. We can't say, well, this guy's actually kind of a bigger victim in his own right because he's still yeah. got to live with all this. Um, I'm not asking for an answer, just I guess in your field, how do you grapple with this question? 
the, the really the question of free will in regard to criminal justice. Yeah, so I think there's a lot of different schools of thought about this, and I think it's important to clarify a handful of things. The first thing is that there are forensic psychologists who sort of work in this area, but the definitions within psychology of things like psychopathology, mental illness, capacity, things like that are very different than the legal definitions. Forensic oh. psychologists sort of have a foot in two worlds because they're very um, aware of legal def like the, there's a legal definition of insanity but nobody in psychology uses the term insane it's it's like a holdover from a legal process so a psychologist might make a case for a lack of capacity and then the lawyer might make a case for insanity quote unquote because that's not really a, a, a distinction that we have in in psychology um, the other point that I think is an interesting one to grapple with, and I'm not speaking for anybody but myself here, is that I personally don't believe in evil. I don't think there's such a thing as, quote, evil. Um, I think that's a religious concept. And so I, it's, it's interesting because I covered a story on SGU like years ago about... Um, a construct that the um, the researchers defined as belief in pure evil. So they called it BPE throughout the study. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, belief in pure evil. Do people believe in the concept of evil or not? And they, they constructed a, a questionnaire and they gave it to a bunch of people and they asked them about whether or not they believe things are evil or not. And then they looked at a bunch of other things and they compared their belief in evil to their views about other things. And they found that people who tend to believe in pure evil are also less likely to be um, advocates of rehabilitation strategies for criminal activity. They're more likely to advocate for punitive action, and they're more likely to promote the death penalty. And I Old Testament that, types. Yeah, I thought it was a really interesting concept. So I'm on the other side of that, right? I don't believe in pure evil. I, like you, believe that very often when crimes are committed, um, they're committed out of desperation. So some sense of I need to do this because I need money. I need to do this because I am angry that this person wronged me. I need to do this because, um, yeah, like either it's a payback thing or it's a it's a uh, my hands are tied behind my back and I ultimately feel like this is the only way out. You know, whatever the case is, they did the mental gymnastics that got them to the place where this seemed like the best option in front of them. Um, and you're right. It's it's very similar to when I worked in the foster care system. I would work with girls and I mostly worked with teenage girls who were it was more the norm than the exception that they had experienced um, sex trafficking, that they had experienced severe abuse, neglect, um, you know, kind of pick your poison. And it was really heartbreaking to see that day that they turned 18 when they went from becoming the victim to the perpetrator, just like overnight, just like the day they turned 18. Now all of a sudden they're an adult and they're fully responsible for all of their actions. And when they do these things, they're now criminals and they're no longer victims. And I do think that we don't do a great job of um, identifying the, the wiggly line. At the same time, we do live in a society that has to have rule of law. Of in order to protect individuals. And so, unfortunately, very often victims become, they sort of, it's like a, a pipeline situation. Victims of abuse become perpetrators themselves. And where does the personal responsibility come in? It's an important question. I personally think that therapeutic intervention is one of the best tools that we have. I think that oftentimes the problem is that individuals don't have access to rehabilitation strategies. I do think that a rehabilitative model is a good model. I don't think that our prison system utilizes a rehabilitation model. Partially that's because we have capitalized the shit out of our prison system and it's a money-making enterprise. Um, I don't believe that people sitting their whole lives in prison is a good way for them to learn to grow, to adapt, to develop, you know, pro-social skills, good coping mechanisms. A lot of these things were never taught. And it takes sometimes much longer to teach an adult the things that little kids absorb when they're raised in healthy families with enough nutrition, with enough um, stimulation, with enough educational opportunities, you know, not in poverty, all the, all, you know, the laundry list of, of adverse childhood experiences. Um, but it's a, you know, it's a tough one. I think, at the very least, prison reform is something that could be uh, an answer to these these questions, these problems. 
Like, what do you mean practically by that? Because, uh, you know, I think we can all agree that if you said, well, you know, four hours of therapy and you can get 50% of people in prison from repeating those mistakes when they got out of there, everybody's on board with that. If it's, well, they're going to need three time, three full-time dedicated therapists for the next 25 years, practically speaking, we all know that's not going to get done. Mm-hmm. How fixable in your experience is how much of the quote-unquote criminal population I think very. I do okay, think good. that, yeah, I think that, um, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And the problem sure. is our, our society is all about the cure and not the prevention. I think that if we had, and I know it sounds really silly, but like uh, the fairness doctrine, like if we look back at like the Reagan administration and a lot of changes that took place to the way that television w- worked, the way that we funded our news media, back in the day, our news media was funded by the television shows that made money. So, so like a TV show, like your nightly news didn't have, it wasn't advertisement based and it wasn't about getting, getting eyeballs on it. And people, the different networks weren't concerned about ratings for the news. The news was like a a, a money suck and the other shows were a money maker and those things funded the news. And I think that you combine that with there, it it was legally required that a certain percentage of each television network was, was dedicated to pro-social educational programming. All of that has been done away with. And I think because of that, among a lot of other societal changes, we're not fostering empathy we're not fostering pro-social behavior in the youngest of young. And I do think that if we as a society decided that these things mattered to us and decided to prioritize them and put money into them, which, yes, requires a little bit of a movement into a socialistic view um, and a movement away from like a, a staunch capitalistic, you know, the cutthroat, the things that earn the most and that have the best profits quarter after quarter are the things that we prioritize and the things that matter. Um, I do do you think that that actually has a direct effect on young boys, especially young girls as well, but definitely young boys because they make up the vast majority. Young boys become then young men and they make up the vast majority of individuals who perpetrate violent crimes. Um, if, if there was a, a shift, you know, and when we talk about nonviolent crimes, that's where the prison reform gets a little bit simpler, like no mandatory minimums, like no criminalization of poverty. No, you know, these kinds of things are just, they're, they're decisions that actually we're seeing jurisdictions making left and right. We're already seeing some of this criminal reform, you know, um, ex-convicts, people with felony records being able to vote once they're released. Like these things are huge for a functional society. But specifically, if you want to focus on violent crime, I do think that there are prevention strategies that we're not even utilizing right now. Well, and you said, you know, uh, an ounce of prevention, it's, you know, would you spend $10 on a padlock to keep a thousand bucks from getting robbed from your, you know, from your locker or or whatever, if, if you can demonstrate that spending, you know, upfront investment will save you money in the long run, that should be uh, even Ish. to the, the most, yeah, that the most hard edged you know, conservative, compassionate conservative, that should be a winning argument. It should be persuasive. The problem is, I was just talking about this on SGU last night when we were talking about climate change and, you know, mitigation strategies and stuff. Sure. I want to talk about that as well. Go ahead. Right. Oh, good. Yeah. Our culture and our, um, and especially our political climate is not conducive to, yes, we care about ROI. It's pretty much all we care about is return on investment, but we only care about ROI tomorrow. Yeah. We don't care about ROI in five years and 10 years and 20 years because that doesn't fall with the election cycle. So the part of the problem is that unless we can prove an immediate positive benefit, and usually what that lends to is like a benefit for the shareholders, like that's what people are much more concerned about than an amortized positive benefit of um, uh, what is, there's a term that's often used, the... um, uh, the co- like when we talk about climate change and like a company externalized cost, we're not often thinking about the externalized cost of all of these things. We're just saying, how much does it cost on paper right now? And what is the immediate ROI? Not how is this going to affect the climate? How is this going to affect um, our, our social and emotional well-being? How is this going to affect pollution? You know, like we don't think about any of that stuff. It's not built into how our system runs. No, kicking the can down the road is unfortunately the way that that the system is 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 built to to work. Well, it wasn't built yeah. that way, but that's the inevitable um, outcome of the way well, that it's 
built. I would argue that it was built that way. I would mm. argue that, you know, a capitalist system, it's not a, a um, bug, it's a feature that yeah. certain people gain, other people lose. And um, uh, individuals who have power and privilege and money continue to grow their power and privilege and money and the divide gets larger and larger. That's a, it's a fundamental function of laissez-faire capitalism. And I think that any, you know, um, uh, uh, economist worth their salt recognizes that when they model these things from the very beginning. It's not like an, ooh, we never saw this coming. It's like that is the eventuality that has to come when the system is built this way without enough regulatory um, uh, protections built in. Well, then every 80 years or so, we get out the guillotines, literally or figuratively, and reset everybody somewhere close to zero and then let the process repeat itself. Just not not in each particular culture or society every 80 years, every 80 years or so across the globe, maybe I would say every, right. like five years, because there's a lot of civil war that's constantly happening in like high conflict, um, you know, low um, SES areas. But you're right. Like here in the US, this has been the case for 400 years and it's only gotten worse and worse. Let me ask you about something. I don't expect you to uh, remember everything you say on the Talk Nerdy podcast. I think it was the most recent episode you talked to your guest about the American obsession with the cult of personality. Does that ring a bell oh, to you Wendy. at all? Oh, Wendy. Yeah, Wendy brought that up. Yeah. So in, in that context, and let me know if I've got this wrong or if I'm saying this wrong, you talked about a sort of... Um, intellectual brain disease that I think many of us perceive to be going on across our society, you know, not limited to the alt-right, but let's just start there. That's an easy example that it has, it's not something, it's not a new phenomenon. I guess the extent to which it has blossomed mm -hmm. is, is very, I say, it used to be like the dumbest person I saw on Facebook said crazy stuff. Now it's like the dumbest person I used to go to high school with. Like it just mm -hmm. keeps on getting a little bit closer mm -hmm. to home. Now, again, as somebody who studies what makes people tick on an actual physical level. How do you reckon with so many people who, I know it's not as out of nowhere as it seems to those of us who weren't looking for it, but seemingly out of nowhere, you know, simultaneously question accepted dogma from the powers that be so hard yet demonstrate little to no interest or ability to evaluate it. Yeah, so I think that this is, um, it's interesting because uh, you're right in the most recent episode that we aired, which was um, with uh, Wendy Zuckerman, who's the host of Science Versus. I talked with her about this concept. Um, but in two weeks, I don't know when this is going to air, but in two weeks as of our recording this, I'm going to come out with a new episode. So I think the next one is Eric Kirschenbaum. So we're going to be talking about like life on other planets. And then the one after that is this guy, Lee McIntyre, who wrote a book called How to Argue... Uh, or how to talk to a science denier. And one huh. of the things that we talked about a lot was that I think it's really important that we make a distinction, and this distinction is not often made, between the perpetrators and the architects of misinformation, of fake news, of pseudoscience and propaganda, and then the um, spreaders, you know, the receivers and the spreaders. And I likened it when we were talking unto, there's like the cult leader and then there's the cult followers. And sometimes the cult followers are victims in their own right. Sure. And so I think one of the problems is just like with the war on drugs, we're obsessed with the low level dealers <laughs> and we're not looking at the kingpins. Like, it's the people, like, and, and what we often forget is that this didn't just come out of nowhere. This um, lack of trust and sort of undermining of um, belief in empirical knowledge, in, um, in wisdom, in fact, in reason, in logic, has been a systematic undermining that's taken place over several years. And so when certain individuals target a, com a campaign to systematically undermine trust in the news media, to systematically undermine trust in our intelligence organizations, to systematically undermine trust in our premier science institutions, to systematically undermine trust in uh, the voices that we have historically tended to look to as um, authoritative voices. When the campaign 
is doing that. And, and, and the truth of the matter is who's doing this. We're seeing it. You're right on the extreme, right? We're seeing it like Trump's Trump's entire cabinet was working really hard to do this. And it was a concerted effort. This was not something that happened overnight. It was intentional. Um, we also see, sadly, a lot of international interference. Like we see these like Russian kind of smear campaigns to undermine sort of our our faith in our fair elections. Yeah, yeah, they're like what Bart Simpson used to do on The Simpsons where there's two people arguing and he would run to one side and go, I heard that they said blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And then he'd run to the other side and say the opposite mm -hmm. of that. That's yeah. literally the role that they play in this. It's like what a lot of the kind of like Russian bot Facebook posts yes. that, yeah, 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 for sure. And then they, they, and then they become memes and then they take on a mind of their own. And then we as a society and culture actually perpetrate and spread and make it worse and amplify. And it doesn't help that social media companies' algorithms are built again to amplify the garbage and not to amplify the kind of evidence-based, quote, boring stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think what we tend to do is we tend to obsess over grandma and why is grandma spreading this stuff and how come I can't argue with grandma, but we're not going like, what do we do about Merkola? What do we do about, about these like big people who like, honestly, I think should be prosecuted for this? Dumb question. Who, who or what is Merkola? Merkola. Oh, I can't remember his first name. He's a, he's a, uh. How do, how do I even describe him? Um, he's like a, a Wakefield type. Like he has like a media empire that's all about alternative health and alternative medicine. And it's uh, all yeah, garbage yeah. and it's all pseudoscience. And, you know, ivermectin this and and hydro, hydroxychloroquine that and uh, all of the things. And it's dangerous because he has a megaphone. And I think that there are multiple sort of kingpins like that, that we're yeah. not actually, we're not holding their feet to the fire. So last I heard, I did look this up, somewhere between 97 and 99% of the doctors in the American Medical Association said they either had received or planned to receive the coronavirus vaccine. And last mm -hmm. I checked, something, it's not as huge a number as I think we make it out to be, something like 20% of Americans say, absolutely no way, there's nothing that mm -hmm. you can ever okay. do to convince me to, to, to do, again, it's not in the scheme of things, like people have done We've had dumber statistics, you know, like 20% of people don't believe that the moon is real or, you know what right, I mean? Like right, the, we, right, yeah. we know we can always pick a Gallup poll. That's like, yeah, what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's no, yeah. there's, there's statistical idiocy noise, no matter where you look, but how, how did you, you've sort of talked about how we got to this point. Mm -hmm. How does science undo that? How mm -hmm. does science win back the trust of people who's, and I think it's so hilarious because I, I, I still truly believe that most of the people who feel that way when push comes to shove when they're having a heart attack or something they they don't want like sage and eucalyptus and mm -hmm. something that aaron Rodgers told them they took when right. push comes to shove everybody actually wants a plain old doctor well and the funny thing is that as there have been multiple studies now because this is a hot topic that yeah. show that the number one drivers of vaccine acceptance are physicians. So if somebody is questioning if they're confused, if they're hesitant, if they're whatever, if their doctor says, "Dude, you got to do it." Trust me, it's going to keep you safe. It's going to be good for you. Uh, you. You come to me all the time for your heart. We talk about our blood pressure. We figure all this out. Go get the vaccine. They're more likely to do it. That's the number one person in their life that has the most sway when it, it comes be. to that. Which it should be, yeah. Right. And so it's good to know that that's still the case. I think that how does how how do we affect change in this way? Again, it's system it's it's system wide. I truly believe that if there never had been a Trump admin, we would not be in the mess we're, we're in right now. Like if if Biden had been elected or or if like Hillary Rodham Clinton had been, let's actually like put it in real, not like if Biden four years ago is what, but like whether it was Biden or or Hillary, right? If, if he had won the primary, I don't care. Um, and there was no Trump, this global health crisis would have been managed better. And I don't think that the amount of distrust in these institutions would be as prevalent. It wouldn't be as um, blown out of proportion by the media. It wouldn't be as focused on and it wouldn't have spread around the way that it did. I still think there would always be denialism. I think that it would be more um, minimized and more viewed as like the kooky outliers and given less of a central voice in the conversation. And I do think that we would probably have better vaccine um, uh, 
numbers right now than we do. That said, you know, it's hard to unring bells. It just takes longer. So how yeah. do we how do we restore trust? We just keep being trustworthy. It's the only thing we can really do. And when there are individuals who again have active, calculated, orchestrated pseudoscientific propaganda campaigns that are trying to undermine trust, we don't give them a voice. We keep them out of elected office. We keep them from power because as long as they're in power and they have these massive megaphones, they're going to start changing people's minds. And that's really dangerous. Now, obviously, what happens to an extent, what happens in America, so goes the rest of the world. We're obviously a, a global leader. That having been said, there there have been and I'm sure would have been anti-vax anti-science movements and i mean i i'm surprised i see uh putin can't get russians to vaccinate and i'm like wait i thought they were the ones who were laughing at the rest of us because right, you don't really us. see it in china well yeah that's <laughs> you know that's what it's like you see it you saw it in brazil because bolsonaro is trump yeah. junior um you know you see it in areas where uh that kind of rhetoric has taken a foothold yes you see it on a lot of our kind of these like colonial English speaking, like partner countries of the U S like Australia and the UK, you know, but and South Africa, actually I do think it's a totally different scenario in South Africa um, for a lot of sociopolitical reasons. But, um, but yeah, you, you do see it, but I do, I do, I think it's apples and oranges. I don't think we can compare country to country to country because every country has their own geopolitical kind of stuff going on. They have their own history. They have their own conflict and they have their own values. And where you're not seeing it that much are in the European countries that would really push back at the statement that how goes the U.S. goes the rest of the world. They would be like, not us. Right. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> You're probably right. Yeah. Different uh, different subject, slightly lighter subject. Earlier uh -huh. this week on your Twitter, you shared an article from the New York Times about the science of dreams. Oh, and now, okay. Uh -huh. Yeah. Okay. Now, once again, I, not every day I get access to somebody with your level of experience <laughs> and expertise. What do you professionally make of dreams? What wh I know that there is no uh, answer to yeah, this. Yeah, there really isn't. And this is not my area of expertise, so yeah. I'm going to try not... I'm going to try and give the most conservative answers possibly. Uh, do you possible. Think, well, do, let, let's let's frame it this way because mm -hmm. this is probably the simplest question. Um, do they are are they valuable? Do they have meaning? I'll show my cards. I lean that way, or is it literally you watching your brain take out the trash? I think it's both. I think it's both. Like I think that your brain needs to do weird stuff when you're when you're in REM. Like because there's a difference between talking about like the purpose of sleep and the purpose of dreaming. And we know yes. that the purpose like we need to sleep. If we don't sleep, we die. We've seen horrible exper experiments of like what happens to the bodies of mice that aren't allowed to sleep. We've heard case studies of people who had horrific insomnia and all that, like this like massive organ failure and like wounds on their hands. It's it's bananas. So we need to sleep. There's a reparative property to sleep and then there's this weird phenomenon where we dream when we're asleep um some people don't remember their dreams so like right there it's like is there a purpose or a meaning well what do you do with the you know percentage of the population that's like i don't know what the hell i dream like the minute i wake up i don't remember that it even happened like you'll all there's always somebody who's like i don't dream and you're like you actually do <laughs> you just don't remember them um and so is there a meaning is there a purpose i look at it the way that i look at um what are called projective psychological assessments. So things like the Rorschach and the TAT, so like the ink blots or the little pictures. And, and a lot of psychologists use these. I think that there is an extreme example that I don't give credence to where psychologists make all sorts of insights and judgments based on them and they try to manualize the responses and say that means that you have some psychotic tendencies over here and you're probably really not over this thing you had with your mother and that kind of stuff I'm like what are you talking about but is it valuable to show somebody an ink blot and listen to what they have to say of course it is it helps me understand who they are and what that it's not because of what they think about the ink blot it's because of what they would talk about any stimulus like it, it, it's a it's a contextualized way to communicate with somebody to understand their thoughts, their feelings, their ideals, their values, how they reflect on themselves, how they reflect on the world. And so, yes, if I have a patient and I show them ink blots, and over and over the themes of the ink blots are really sad, 
I might be concerned that they're struggling with sadness in their life. And I think it's similar with dreams. If somebody is having a lot of night terrors and a lot of nightmares and a lot of stress dreams, I might be concerned about underlying anxiety problems. Um, that said, if the person's like, I'm not anxious at all, my life is really easy, like that's all valuable information. I don't have access. This is, I think, something that makes me, this is partially why I really respect and kind of connect to the existential humanistic view. I believe in my heart of hearts that I don't have access. I don't have any sort of special power as a psychologist to my patient or my client's psyche that they don't have access to. They are the experts of their lives and their minds. They let me in. And then we collectively work together to develop new insights, to right. find patterns. But I can't sit with somebody for an hour in a room and go, huh, it's very clear to me that you X, Y, Z, and they have no idea. That only happens in the, in the most severe examples of low insight, which is pretty rare. And that happens with in, you know, intellectual disability or maybe extreme psychopathology like psychosis. Right, but you're not just going to sit there and say, y y if you'd been breastfed three months longer, you never would have been here today. No, and honestly, any psychologist worth their salt would never do that. I think that we, our view of, of what a shrink is, is very, like, based in the movies. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, not yeah. anybody who's actually been in therapy is like, I've never experienced any of the stuff you see in the movies. It's so funny. It seems to me, based on what I kind of understand about Freud, it's... Uh... Like I think about it in terms of like classic rock that like Jimi Hendrix kind of thought of some of the coolest like what if we did really psychedelic music and he was so smart about realizing where he could take it. He also found the coolest examples of that and the Beatles were like what if we did this and because they were smart enough to think of it they were also smart enough to realize that vision. Freud's the opposite where it's like he had the right impulse on everything yet it drew him to the most ludicrous possible <laughs> conclusions. Well, I think of it as like, it's just hubris, right? It's like this yeah. guy who goes, there's, su there's such a thing as a talking cure. And people go, no, never. Yeah. You can't just talk about your problems and then like actually develop solutions and feel better. Like it needs to be medical. It needs to be medical. Like you're a, you're a psychiatrist. You need to prescribe. You need to give them a... Uh, um, procedure like it's you got to pull their teeth or you got to you know think about all the weird old psychiatric yeah. procedures morphine like gotta, leeches right and then he's like no, no no but really just talking is a procedure and people were like we don't buy it we don't buy it and so then he's like okay let me give you some examples of some insights and that's where things kind of like left the rail like the talking part is like 90 percent of it right? right and then i think that he yes had this view that he developed out of hubris because he was a man. Most of his patients were women. Most of his patients he diagnosed with, quote, hysteria. Um, you know, like they had literally a wandering uter uterus. Like that's what people thought was going on. Like, oh, it's their lady parts. It's making them crazy. Um, and, and he was able to develop or make these ludicrous insights because he knew better than her because he was a man and he had a rational mind and she didn't because she fell victim to her crazy lady brain. And I think that this is a historical problem that we see over and over again, not just in psychology, but in medicine, just in any situation where a woman is vulnerable to a practitioner, to a male practitioner who views himself because of his educational level as having more power, more insight, more knowledge, and more say. And if you think about way back in the day when women would go to the doctors, th they would get the examination and then the doctor would tell the husband the outcome of the examination because it was just not, not thought, but understood. Like this was fact, that like women's minds couldn't process that. Like that's not, they don't need to know about that. That's going to give them more exhaustion. So I'll just, I'll tell the husband. Like yeah. that's, that's how we used to literally view women. And I think that Freud was infected by that as well. The funny thing is that Anna Freud, his daughter was actually pretty insightful and she had her own weirdness, but like, yeah. it's cool to see that they're, and that's sort of around the time where we started to see some pretty big changes with regards to um, women's rights within healthcare, women's rights. I mean, it's, we're still far from equity, um, but uh, we have seen, you know, seen some good fights. And it's interesting that, that Anna Freud was one of those people. Yeah, she was the big uh, custodian of his 
image. I know that she, uh, in she addition to other things. she was also a psychiatrist. Yeah, so yeah, I know that. Yeah, yeah right, right. Yeah. Um, Jung has aged a little bit better, right? I guess, but Jung is like, you know, I don't I don't buy into most Jung because Jung's a little bit, he's super mystical. Like, I'm not, I don't, know, I don't get into yeah, that. Yeah, that's, like, that's, yeah, you, you yeah, really. It's not my world. So Jung to man, me, I, I know people The Mormons really Jung. did you dirty, huh? I know, right? It's weird because my, one of my, prof- actually the chair of my dissertation is like a Jungian expert, and, but he's mm-hmm. really into Jewish mysticism and Kabbalah and like, he studies all this stuff and writes about it all. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> like, it's, it's interesting. There's like cool takeaways from it, but like, yeah. I'm always like, you don't, you don't actually buy any of this stuff too. No, he does. He does. Cause, cause I do too. I'm, I'm like, a, I, I'm like a Cadbury egg. I think I'm pretty smart on the outside but in the middle of my brain there's just a gooey center you can <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so the i would say if you were interested or curious in who i read and who i think informs my my thoughts and views about these topics the most i would say um probably the number one person is irvin yalom so if you've never read irv yalom highly recommend he's a more how do you spell modern, that uh, y-a-l-o-m Okay. Um, and then also, I'd say Viktor Frankl to some extent, and many people have read *Man's Search for Meaning*, uh, which is a book that he wrote after his horrifying experience at Auschwitz. Right. Um, he was a psychiatrist who was developing what he called logotherapy, which was his meaning-focused therapy. Logo in Greece in Greek is like meaning, right? Purpose, mm-hmm. meaning. Um, so logotherapy is something that he had been developing before the Shoah, but then during the Holocaust, he really was able to make a lot of insights from his observations. Um, sort of his big question was like, why do some people survive? It wasn't so much why do people die? We know why people died. They were starved to death. They were overworked. They were, and some of them were actively murdered. But in the sure. camps, why did some people survive in spite of the fact that they should have been dead? And so it wasn't a... Um, so, so he sort of developed this whole approach to psychotherapy about how to find your own purpose and your own meaning and your own drive. And his sort of famous quote, which I always butcher, is that like, if you can find a why, you can almost certainly find a how. So it's very hard to go on. It's very hard to get through difficult times. Oh, I see. Oh, now I get it. Yeah, purpose or meaning. But if you can find that, sometimes it gives you the hope that that's necessary to get through. It doesn't doesn't mean you're going to live. No. I I see this a lot with cancer patients, right? Like sometimes you're just, you're going to die. But um, there is also a point where some people lose that core and it can be really, really hard for them. Like they fall into what we often call the existential vacuum. Yeah, well, this is actually, I've never read Jung, but this reminds me of the only thing I know about Jung, which is, I'm quoting Joseph Campbell, quoting him, which is Jung saying, it's a hell of a thing to live with a myth, and it's a hell of a thing to live without one. And that's Mm -hmm. that's sort of the same thing. When your life is animated by a sincere belief that there's more to this, that that informs everything. Or you're right. And if that is what the meaning is, yes. Yeah. And so this is like an interesting distinction between, let's say, like a, a, a Viktor Frankl or like a Kierkegaard, like a more sort of um, religious existentialist. And then like a, a Satya or like somebody like a Camus, who's like a more atheistic existentialist, is that they'll say that you know, the religious people might believe that there is meaning and purpose that is imbued within the world because God like sort of put it there, right? And that it's our job as sort of mortals to uncover it. Whereas a more secularly oriented existentialist would say there is no intrinsic meaning and purpose. So it's our job as mortals to create it as if like, like an artist would. We create our own meaning and purpose. And from my perspective, it's basically the same thing. Whether you believe that it's already there and you need to uncover it or whether you believe that it's not there and it's devoid and you need to create it, either way, it's about finding meaning, finding purpose, going towards it and, and making space for it in your, you know, whatever you want to call it, your mind, your heart, your, you know, soul, your person, your being. That's interesting because I've always thought that it was sort of a third answer, which is, that, again, I don't know if the the beauty and the transcendence that I experience, bad choice of words, transcendence, but the transcendent-like feeling that I experience in life, I don't know if that comes from something transcendent or not, but I do experience. There's some things that mm-hmm. just feel bigger, better, more wonderful than mm-hmm. what is strictly necessary for, you know, eating, procreating, perpetuating the yeah. species kind and of stuff. And some people think they have those experiences when they think about 
science when they sure, think about, sure. you know, like awe, it's awe, like the idea of awe. Yeah. Um, of, like, of, like, so- I find life is very awesome and it, mm-hmm. and it is, and, and it may be evolution that has made life and my ex- human experience of life very, very awesome. But sort of in the same way that beauty is its own excuse for being, life is, is, is its own excuse for living. Right, and who right. And I, I, but I don't feel like I need to create that and put that on life. I experience that in life. I just don't know where it comes from. Right, but that means that you have access to it. So mm-hmm. what you don't, what you haven't experienced is losing that. And that's right. the part that is um, so important to these types of therapies. They're yeah. not for you because you're no. in it. But That sounds you, like a bad time. Yeah, and that's that. What's that's what sometimes happens when people experience these boundary experiences, an extreme loss. You lose like a, a loved one, a partner, or a child. You, uh, you have a, an, an experience in which you're very close to death, but then you survive, or you have a life limiting illness like ALS or cancer, and you're experiencing se- severe and significant decline. And you start to not always, but sometimes people lose touch with that awe. And yeah. so a lot of what we do in therapy is. To try and find it again wow that's very important work when you put it that way all right i want to i want to i don't want (laughs) to i don't want to keep you any longer you've already been very generous with your time but i do want to ask just very quickly touch on the subject of climate change because that's sort of an open and shut easy thing to talk about of Uh, course yeah done (laughs) solved if if i were to tell you that um our planet was going and humankind were going to avert climate disaster and i asked you to guess based on your experience in reading whether that would be because of carbon neutralizing technology or because of emerging clean energy sources which would you guess the answer was both it has to be both it can't be one or the other you don't think so you don't think that they could just get they could work out fusion in 10 years and then just leave the carbon but don't add any more to it yeah i was gonna say if the carbon if the carbon neutralizing technology was efficient enough to scrub even new sources of carbon then that would be the way to go but it's not and so and i mean we are developing some pretty cool carbon neutralizing technologies but they're we don't know if they're scalable we don't know you know and then the reduction of emissions we know for a fact i mean every calculation shows us that if we stopped emitting tomorrow there's still enough co2 in the atmosphere to cause a lot of downstream problems so it we it's got to be both and that's the scary thing like it can't be one or the other unless and and i think the the former not the latter is a dangerous proposition because it's the only scenario in which we could keep emitting is if we develop technology that would scrub but that is a gamble that i am not willing to take right like like i've heard it placed as like um or or put in the context of like i'm not going to just like lay my nickel down that we're going to come up with some giant like dust buster yeah. <laughs> that just sucks everything up like oh we'll just keep making trash one day we'll figure out what to do yeah. with it like right no. like dot matrix and space balls is just going to show up and yeah clear like it all that's out. banana that is not the appropriate way to develop a mitigation strategy so it's both right it's yeah. about reducing and mitigating what's already there we have to not a fan of Bill Gates's space mirrors to block out the sun. No, I don't want to block right. out the sun. I want to not all so of it, just just enough of it. <laughs> we've got some, but that's not the cause. That's not the problem. I mean, that's no, the I thing. Know. It's like there's no one answer to this. Yeah. We have to stop emitting. We have to stop polluting. We have to stop consuming. We have to stop extracting, and then we also have to come up with innovative ways to deal with the pollutions the emissions the extractions mm-hmm. that yeah. we've already done we it's got to be both are you very optimistic about uh, humankind's um ability to police itself and consume less and no. emit less right why would i be i mean no yeah. like yeah we've not right. we have no track record <laughs> like right. our track record is just bad 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 it's like i wouldn't give me this job again you know what yeah. I mean? Like, right. like you've already proven that you can't, you can't, like you're not responsible enough to keep this this puppy. Your puppy died, and then I got you another puppy, and then you just keep killing it over and over. Like, why would I get you another puppy? And I think that that's, you know, I don't, I don't have kids. I'm 38. I don't want them. I don't plan to make any. I don't like the way this is going. I feel in some ways lucky that I won't be here to see the worst of it. But I'm scared and horrified by how bad it's gonna be. And I think that each generation has the absolute and utter right to be pissed at the generation before it. And when I see uh, Greta Thunberg, you know, 
in tears, angry, yelling at the adults in the room and, and like um, just begging them to listen to her. Like I feel a lot of empathy for that experience because it's true. Like we, we are failing our, and that's the royal hour because I don't have any children. Well, on that happy note. <laughs> <laughs> You're the one who asked that question last. No, I know, I know. <laughs> So do they make any cool inventions or anything? Anything fun going on in science? Hey, say something good and fun. The science of cotton candy, anything? Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you very much. Uh, as I said, I accessible scientific talk, that, uh, but, but it'll still definitely make you think, and I really do mean that um, in the best possible way. I feel like I learned something listening to you and your guests on the Talk Nerdy podcast. Thank you so much. I'm glad we were able to pull this off. You're at Cara Santa Maria on all applicable socials. Yep, except I think Facebook. I'm Science Cara, but yeah, Facebook's, but still, just, Facebook's still a thing. I, huh? I know. I'm like, just Google me. I, I'm yeah. like the only Cara Santa Maria. You it's know easy. what? I'm gonna I'm gonna start doing that at the end of shows. Just her name's Cara Santa Maria. Just Google her. Just like Google you'll find her. all the things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's all anybody was gonna do anyway. Exactly. All right, all right. I'm turning over a new leaf. I don't know that the rest of my guests are gonna be quite as cool about that that uh, salutation as you are, but. <laughs> You know, oh, I do have something I could say. Something I could plug. I never have a plug. I'm always like, whatever, I don't care. Um, We just changed the tiers on my Patreon. Yeah. uh, Which is exciting. So now you have access to an ad-free version of the show. So um, if you are interested in that, you can visit patreon.com slash talknerdy. And you can learn more about all the cool stuff that you have access to and um, support the show. Right. And if you didn't get that URL, Google it. Yeah, just Google it. It's cool. You'll find it. All right. Thank you. (laughs) 